Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal here is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, today, episode 60. 60? Mm-hmm. That seems like a milestone. I think so. I think every 10 podcasts, I'm always amazed that we continue to do this. <laughs> Are we going to run out of stuff eventually? No, I don't think we'll ever run out of content. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What, what do we got today? Well, today is an Ask Andrew Anything. Oh. For every 10 episodes, we stop for a moment. We ask listeners, do you have any questions to ask Andrew? And if you do, email us at podcast at IEW.com. And then if you sent in a question, chances are I'm going to read it. And if you didn't send in a question, chances are I'm not going to read it. So if someone sends in a question right now, we just bump it to episode episode 70? Exactly. Oh, okay. God willing and the creek don't rise, we will be doing episode 70 (laughs) in about 10 weeks. Okay. (laughs) Hopefully sooner than that, though. All right. So this is Valerie, and she's from Albuquerque, New Mexico. She says, my fifth grade son has dysgraphia. What is the best way to improve his handwriting without making it overwhelming? And how can I implement this strategy so I can use IEW with him? Well, this is a hard question to answer without more information because dysgraphic is an adjective or dysgraphia is a noun that could have a wide range. On one end of the spectrum, you could have someone who's so dysgraphic they can't possibly put letters on paper. And on the other end, you could have a student who is dysgraphic only to the point where under stress, maybe they flip and reverse and struggle. Mm -hmm. So I can't tell Valerie from Albuquerque what to do, but she does have to make a decision and she's the best person to make the decision. The decision is, is it worth the challenge? Is it worth the battle? Is it worth the effort? And if it's an extreme case, maybe the answer is no. Just let this child type and type everything because that's a diagnosable handicap. And like other specific handicaps, you can't change them per se. You accommodate for them. And we do have modern technology that assists people who have those clear disabilities in accomplishing what they need to accomplish in various ways, and and in writing, of course, typing, and now we can more easily talk to our devices. So if that's the decision you make, then don't worry about the handwriting. If the decision you make is, no, I really want this child, and I believe that this child can develop decent handwriting, and it won't be overwhelmingly difficult to the point where you don't want to die on that hill, right? Then you would look at a motivational system. And so that's where sometimes I will share what I used with my son, who was very, very dyslexic, didn't read a book till he was 12. But when he was 10, I thought, he can't read, but he's going to write, you know, because he's my son and I'm the writing guy. (laughs) So I set up a program where he would do copying, just straight copying from any source that he would choose, 
and the goal was 100 words a day. Now, to copy 100 words a day for this child would be worse than shoveling manure in 100-degree weather wearing a raincoat. It would be the worst form of torture you could contrive. So you have to change it from being a chore to be argued about, avoided, (laughs) procrastinated, you know, flat-out refused, to a challenge to be accomplished. And in his case, the big motivator was airsoft. So I set up a system so that he could copy 100 words a day. And if he could copy these 100 words correctly, I would pay him a penny a word. If he could get it done in 20 minutes, which I chose because I thought that was a reasonable amount of time, Mm -hmm. he could earn a 25 cent bonus. So if he was perfect, you know, he could get a dollar and 25 cents each day, which is, you know, pretty decent money when you're a 10 year old without Mm -hmm. a job. (laughs) However, you also have to go the opposite. And as I talked about in the motivation series, Mm -hmm. if you only have a positive consequence, the student, the child can just say, well, I don't care. It's not worth the effort. So you also have to have kind of a negative. So in his case was every time you whine, complain, or argue, you lose a dime, mm-hmm. right? Wow. So you could go negative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I own your bank account. <laughs> now, all this money doesn't go straight into your pocket. It goes into a special fund called the Airsoft Weapon Repurchase Fund. And that's the only way you can get airsoft weaponry is with money from the Airsoft Weapon Repurchase Fund. You can't buy airsoft weaponry with grandma's birthday gift check, right? right? So this was highly motivating Mm -hmm. because at that time, this child lived for airsoft. (laughs) So he was willing to do this, even though it was overwhelmingly challenging and required a tremendous amount of concentration and, and willpower. You know, because you have to you have to exert your willpower over your brain and just force your eyes and your brain and your hands to do that, which is very difficult because of the neurological organization. And so he did. He chose uh, in the beginning the Usborne Book of Knights and Medieval Weaponry. I think this was so he could, you know, copy a few words. And then look at a picture of a battle axe and kind of restore his soul. So you let him choose his own Yeah, choose whatever. Work. And mm-hmm. so he did that for a while. And then he shifted over and did a um, novel that his sister was reading to him, hmm. kind of a medieval adventure novel. And, and I don't remember what he did after that. But he kept this going for 16 months or so. Hmm. And it really did improve mm-hmm. the quality of his writing, the stamina the speed with which he was able to put letters on paper. Mm -hmm. And so when he did begin to read independently around 12 and write independently, he had that that muscle, eye, brain coordination more developed simply because of practice. There is no easier way to do it that I'm aware of. So when you have the case of dysgraphia, you have to decide. You know, is this so severe we will accommodate for it with technology and go that route? Or is it something that we believe can be worked on and then you just have to do it? Right. And, and, and it's not going to be an immediate no, answer. It's, it's take just going to be a little bit mm-hmm. every day right. for many, many months, right. years perhaps. But the benefit is then you grow up, you know, 
being able to write on paper right as opposed to the opposite right so wish i had an easier nicer answer (laughs) right well and valerie andrew did a talk on writing that we'll link to in the show notes and you can listen to the entire story of how that all turned out for chris and yeah, his writing and, and also a good one is the teaching boys and other children who would rather be making forts all day. Right. Because that's where we talk about principles of motivation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that need to have not just a, a positive potential, but to have both sides. Right. A negative consequence in the equation together. Right. Good. Okay, this next question comes from Michelle, and she's from Danville, Alabama. Her question is, What areas or units should I emphasize or focus on to help the dyslexic, the poor speller, or the struggling learner on the autism spectrum and help them to see that this system really is for them? Um, Michelle teaches in like a co-op group setting. So So she's she's teaching other people's children. Right. They may not make it to the five-paragraph paper, but there is something in the system for every child. How can I draw that hidden talent out of them? Well, the system works. It isn't as though you do anything different or special for children who have struggles in the areas she mentioned. You follow basic principles. Basic principle number one, source text should be at or below the reading level of the student. So if you have a comprehension issue with the source text, ideally she would find a simpler source text to use in place of that one. If that's not possible, then she would involve the parent and just say, read this source text several times, talk about it, be sure the student really understands it before you jump in and start with the keyword outline and all that. So, you know, the basic principle, source text at or below the reading level of the student. Now, with kids on an autism spectrum, that may be hard to tell because their auditory intelligence or comprehension may be much greater than their verbal expression. Mm -hmm. And if you judge their auditory, if you judge their understanding by their speaking, you might misjudge. But it's always better to err on the side of it being simpler. Mm -hmm. Second basic principle is from the four deadly errors, which is don't withhold help. You know, get the mom involved And if what that means is it's mom and the student doing the whole thing together from beginning to end for the whole year, if that's what's necessary to build a momentum of success and create the best experience for the student, that's way better than trying to push them into or, you know, having the mom be afraid to help too much and pulling back. And then the child is alone, overwhelmed, frustrated, doesn't know what to do, and starts to hate it. Right. So the basic principle is don't withhold help. And maybe even the mom attending class with the student. Well, sometimes that would be necessary Mm -hmm. just so the the mom knows what's going on. Exactly. And in some cases, moms just can't because they've got, you know, twin two-year-olds or something. (laughs) But with technology... Classes can be recorded fairly easily by almost anyone who's got a, a phone or a computer of any sort. And so maybe that can the class can be recorded, and then the mom can hear what went on at least, if not see as well. Mm-hmm. And that should help the mom help the student better. So I don't think that there's any particular part of our syllabus, such as unit 
you know, four is more important than unit three or something. I, I don't think that really is an issue. Uh, but the basic principles. The third principle that I would mention is don't go too fast with the stylistic techniques. Right. Right. Go back to EZ plus one. Mm-hmm. And for this student, EZ might take a longer time to achieve mm-hmm. than another student in that same group. So this teacher wants to be sure to customize the checklist for the students in her class. And if she's got one or two that really need to go a lot slower, then she's got to go over, cross those things off the checklist Mm -hmm. and say, don't worry about all that. You just do these two things. And you tell me when these have become easy, then and only then will we add in the third thing. So this idea that all students should be doing the same thing according to the same schedule is the sure way to lose you know, the top and the bottom of a group, mm-hmm. which is what we see in most sure. classes and schools. Whereas in the tutoring situation, then having each student working at their level of challenge mm-hmm. is the goal. Is that a lot of work for the tutor? Absolutely. But that's what you signed up for. Right. right? <laughs> so follow those three basic principles. Source text at or below. Encourage the parent. Don't withhold help. Give as much help as necessary. Literally, to if that means doing the whole thing together, every assignment of the whole year, doing that would be better than having a frustrated child halfway through. And then easy plus one. Good. Michelle, I hope that helps. So this question is from Anne. She's from North Smithfield, Rhode Island, and she calls herself always a student. That's a good how to Yes. (laughs) How does IEW fit into the classical education paradigm? Well, you know, I wrote a whole article on this, mm-hmm. so uh, let's just link to that. Sure. But to give the very brief outline, number one, our system is based on imitation. And if you look at all of the classical liberal arts, if you look at the fine arts, if you look at the methodology of acquiring skill, and writing is a skill, it's something you do, you can't learn it from reading a book or watching a video. You have to practice it. And the way you get better is to imitate something, to have a model, to have a checklist, to have a well-written source text, to have a teacher rephrase something and have you imitate that. So number one, our system fundamentally is based on imitation, which is a classical foundation, as opposed to the modern approach, Mm. which is much about self-expression, creativity, and spontaneity, and don't do what other people did, you know, be unique, be yourself. But unfortunately, we see that that doesn't really work very well until there's the good foundation of basic skills. And thus, people are drawn strongly to a classical approach in education because we see that the modern progressive approach has been failing students, particularly as it comes to the teaching of writing, particularly in a lot of the schools in this country over the last four to five decades. Right, yep. Number two, uh, our approach follows the canons of rhetoric. So what's our program called? Teaching, writing, structure, and style. What are the canons of rhetoric? Well, number one, invention, what to say. Number two, arrangement, or the structure of ideas, the order in which to say those things. Number three, locution, which, of course, is style. And what we do 
is we actually imitate the ancient rhetoric exercises of the Progymnismata in putting invention not as the first thing to teach, but something a little bit later. If you go and look at one or more variations of the Progymnismata or Pro gymnasmata, people <laughs> pronounce this in different ways, right. you'll find the first exercise is retell a fable. Mm-hmm. So take existing content and represent that, and in the process, learn something about writing and speaking well. Right. So we're following that tradition. We uh, focus on the three main canons of rhetoric, and then we might also note that the fourth canon is memory. And a a good part of what I like to talk about is the huge benefit of memorizing, you know, great poetry, memorizing excerpts of famous speeches. Our whole uh, linguistic development through poetry memorization is, I think, such a wonderful tool for parents to furnish the mind. Mm -hmm. Students can furnish their mind with vocabulary and syntax and beautiful ways to say things and great ideas so that then when they go to write something, they have a much larger repertoire, if you will, of little memorized patterns. Do you know we have a lot of people that send in videos of their kids <laughs> reciting poetry? And the best one that just came in recently, and we'll link to this, it's so adorable. It's a little boy dressed up as a ninja, uh-huh. and he's doing the poem, There Was a Man Who Wasn't There. It has nothing to do with the <laughs> fact that he was in a ninja costume, but just reciting his poetry is really cute. Well, but it would match up because ninjas aren't really there. Oh, right. You're right. Oh, my goodness. Total high five for that one. <laughs> yeah. And it's cute to see very young children they can memorize poetry before they can read. Right. Sometimes more easily than older siblings. So, you know, that, that idea of memorization and memory and cultivating memory, very classical idea. And then the fifth canon of rhetoric is delivery. And that would probably fall into, in the classical sense, being able to stand up and speak well Mm -hmm. in front of your peers or an audience. And that's an essential part of what we do right in the beginning. Unit one, we talk about public speaking and the importance of this and try to carry that through uh, all the way through the units. And then, of course, the other side of delivery would be formatting a paper, presenting that visually well. So if you look at our fundamental principles, you look at our connection with the ancient rhetoric exercises, and then, of course, our integration of the five canons of rhetoric. I don't know how we could be any more classical except to adopt a more obscure vocabulary, but we let other people do that. We keep words in the meaning as they make sense to younger children. Right, because we really don't want to alienate people that are not interested in pursuing perhaps a classical education, but we want them to be able to learn to write well. We want to draw them into the goodness of it. (laughs) The goodness of it, yes. So this question is from Karen. She's from North Carolina. She's been an IEW teacher for years. This is a great question. How do I encourage my very gifted and also fiercely independent writer to still be creative, yet see the editing process as a positive versus a negative? And my hunch is this is a middle school or high school student. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the opposite of what I said about the students who struggle and cut the checklist back and don't go too fast and, you know, cross things off. What you do with a student like this is you go over to them and say, okay, I'm not going to show this to everyone because they're just not ready for it. 
but you, I think, would love to try this new top secret advanced technique. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then that's when you pull out some of our, you know, decoration ideas, if they haven't been taught to the whole class, or the advanced dress-ups, the invisible who witch or the teeter-totters, the invisible number four opener. There are a lot of ways you can challenge an independent creative student by giving them a task that you're not giving to everyone, mm -hmm. then they feel special. Mm -hmm. They feel the special challenge. Then they're willing to play the game because the game came to them. And so I think that will work most of the time. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes you get a, a kid who says, well, I could just, I could write a better story if I didn't have to do that checklist. So then it's easy. You just say, great. Do one story with a checklist and another story without and turn them both in and I'll see which one is better. Right. <laughs> and usually what happens is they come, you know, kind of sulkily. Okay, fine. Yeah, I admit the checklist helps me make it better. Right. I think the key with those types of kids is to just challenge them with the next thing that is not something you're going to give to the whole class of people. Right. I think about my own son. He was in middle school, and we kind of had this little conflict where he's a good writer, and I wasn't able to give him feedback in a way that he was necessarily willing to accept graciously. Mm -hmm. In other words, we argued. And some of that's a character issue, both maybe from the mom and the child. Sure. But some of it is he's just getting to an age where he needs other people to give him feedback. Yeah, that's that's another thing that came to mind as soon as you said that is, why not have him go hire someone else to be his editor? Get dad get grandma, get another friend, go online and pay a fee to mm -hmm. saedge.com or whatever, but get someone else into that editing process because, yeah, mom and teenage boys, <laughs> that can be a head-to-head a -head painful experience. Yes, yes, it can. As we, many of us notice. Yes. Lina from Muncie, Indiana, has a question related to the four deadly errors, you know, especially the one about withholding help. Yes. So it's a little bit of a long question, but I think it's worth exploring okay, a little more deeply. Go. My question, am I crippling my son by doing all of his handwriting? Although he has a slow processing speed, aka the RAM, his hard drive is full of valuable and useful information. He's in seventh grade. Between the slow processing speed and the dyslexia, I can understand why he asked for me to do the handwriting. However, I feel that me doing the handwriting is hindering him because I end up giving him some ideas, she has a, in quotes, ideas, and putting in all of the punctuation. I know that you say once a child doesn't need the help, they will quit asking for help. He has yet to quit asking me for help. It is a constant battle for me to be hands off the content when I am handwriting the story. Is there a better way for him to become more independent? Or should I stick with the same process and be better disciplined about being hands off the content? Well, I think a couple of ways to approach this. One would be continue to do what you're doing in writing out what he wants to say. And at the same time, doing some copy work, as I mentioned for the other, the other question. That way, he's getting both skills. He's getting the thinking of what to say, and he's getting the stamina of putting words on paper. If you do those at the same time, then eventually the stamina of putting words on paper will allow him 
to more easily write what he's thinking onto paper. Mm-hmm. Another approach would be to allow him to dictate the rough draft, but tell him he has to dictate the punctuation so that he gets the habit of doing it kind of like you have to do on a text to your phone, right? Right. <laughs> you have to say period, you know, comma, and tell the phone how to punctuate properly if you want your text messages to look literate. Mm-hmm. Of course, some people don't care, but <laughs> I do. But, you know, that would be a good thing to help with the awareness of punctuation. And, and I would say write it down exactly like he says it, then edit it, then have him copy it over, or if that's going to be too overwhelming, type it up, so that really you're only handwriting the rough draft from the keyword outline exactly the way he says it, then he can edit, you can edit, anybody can edit, and then he takes the edited version and copies that over by hand or types it out depending on which way you want to go with that. So what about this idea of her giving suggestions? Well, you know, that's how you learn stuff, mm-hmm. is hearing, oh, here's a good word that mm-hmm. would fit well here. Okay, that's a bit of information about what's an appropriate word usage in this situation. Right, but he can still choose to sure. use it or not. Usually, what I like to do is give kids a choice and say, well, you could say this, blah, 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 or this, do, 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 give them two options, mm-hmm. let them choose. Both of them will be acceptable. Both of them will work in the thing and not be awkward. And in making a choice, they kind of think they thought of it. And exactly. so that's a win-win. They get good modeling, and they also feel like they were producing it. Okay, we're going to take one more big question, and then I want to switch to some lightning round questions. Or a right. bunch of really quick questions for you. Sounds fine. Okay, this question is from Annette. She's from Paradise, California. Did you know that there's a paradise in California? It sounds oxymoronic. (laughs) Her question is, when do you stop giving the students the checklist they use when they write? I'm not sure if she means, when do you stop giving them a physical checklist so that they can check things off, or when do you stop requiring them to use a checklist? Mm -hmm. Those would be two different questions. Sure. The answer to the first question is, when they have it memorized. Then they know all five dress-ups, all six sentence openers, decorations, triples. They know it. They mark it. They don't need to look at the checklist. That's fine. Most students will memorize it faster than the teachers. (laughs) Right. Right? Yeah, it's true. Now, the other question is, when do you stop requiring them to use the checklist? That is answered in the TWSS seminar. I go into quite a bit of detail that I require everything in every paragraph that every student writes until one of two things happens. Mm -hmm. The first thing is they leave my control. They go off to some other teacher, some other school, whatever. And so they don't have a checklist. Done. The other thing, and it's better, is when they basically master the checklist. When they can do everything on the checklist and make it sound relatively easy, skillful, effortless. They can do everything and it doesn't sound too goofy and they don't need much help. That's when they graduate from the checklist. And that can take, you know, what, years probably. Depending on the age and aptitude and all Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. One thing you know for sure is if a student is still complaining about a checklist, 
it's not easy. Right. So that's when you look at some of the other questions. Is there too much too fast? What's going on? Do we need more challenge? But at some point, people do master the checklist and graduate from it. I, of course, thought I had graduated from the checklist, but <laughs> Webster continuously reminds me that, no, I missed something in right. one of those paragraphs. <laughs> so I'm very hesitant to show him my writing, lest I get run through the gauntlet. Yes, yes, yes. I think about the expression that I said to teens, and I've heard you say it too. Do you want to have your parents stop telling you what to do? How do you do that? <laughs> By doing it before they ask. So it's kind of like that with a checklist. So if you've got students that are still complaining about the checklist, just as you say, they're not ready to graduate from it. Yeah. And our friend Patsy in Minnesota for mm-hmm. years has had, I think, a very fair idea. Mm-hmm. She calls it the left behind list. The idea that if a student wants intentionally to leave out one of the stylistic techniques, because it makes a better paragraph to mm-hmm. not put it in, to not force it, then that student can have one thing, each paragraph, to not do. And what they do then is attach a piece of paper where they write a sentence with that technique. Out of context is fine, just to demonstrate they could if they had to. Right. And I think that's a nice little bit of leeway you can give, especially to second and third year students. Right. Okay, great. All right, you ready for the lightning round? I'm ready. What's more important to study, liberal arts or STEM? Liberal arts. Have you ever done any acting? Yes. My favorite was Twelfth Night. Oh, nice. In high school, did you participate in any team sports? No, I hate professional sports. I hate team sports. What I would really like to do is get out of PE, so I recommend marching band for anyone who's like me. (laughs) Black leather jacket or brown cowboy vest? Neither. Do you enjoy country living? Yes. Do you prefer report writing over inventive writing or inventive over report? Just give me the facts. (laughs) So reports. (laughs) Do you speak any foreign languages in addition to Latin and Japanese? I don't speak Latin. Nobody does except a very few obscure people. And I used to speak Japanese, but my skills have diminished to the point of being non-fluent. Have you ever tried sriracha sauce? Yes, but I still prefer Tabasco. That was the next question. Do you prefer Tabasco or Sriracha Tabasco? Do you prefer teaching elementary students or high school students? Yes. (laughs) Have you ever been to Russia? No, but I may go in 2018 for the next Global Home Education Conference. Exciting. Did you cry at your daughter's weddings? Absolutely. Do you have a favorite movie? Yes, it's a tie between Joan of Arc and The Scarlet and the Black. Do you like unicorns? No. What's your Starbucks order of choice? Grande Americana with an extra shot, room for cream. Do you think you'll ever retire? No. Cats or dogs? If it were not an either or question, the answer would be neither. However, if I were forced to live with one or the other, I would probably choose a dog. Beach or mountains? Mountains. Coffee or tea? Coffee. And the last question comes from Matt Bianco. Matt! Oh, Matt! Is he actually going to listen to this? I hope so. He wants to know, what's the hottest food you've ever eaten? Oh, wow. Well, I don't know if it's the hottest food, but the most memorable experience is when I was a busboy in restaurant in Southern California working with Mexican busboys, and I had then a jalapeno pepper eating contest (laughs) with them, and I did survive, but the after effects were very difficult. (laughs) And with that, we'll say 
This has been a great Ask Andrew Anything podcast, and I do hope that our listeners will feel free to ask you anything, Andrew, for our next episode. Okay, we'll look forward to that. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudois and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.